Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. You made it. Not too late if you're here. I hope everybody had a good weekend. I'm Travis Shaddix. On this channel, we are on a never-ending journey to find out how we know what we know about turfgrass science. You might think you know. Sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking I know certain things. And then sooner or later, I find out somebody publishes something that indicates I didn't know anything. <laughs> but that's what we're here for, trying to figure out how do we know what we know. There's a, I don't know, a couple months from now, I'm sure we'll get into the actual epistemological justifications for certain beliefs and so forth. But, you know, there's a whole career in epistemology trying to figure out what it means and the various philosophies of epistemology and the Descartes style epistemology. The, there's all sorts of different, you know, philosophies on that. There's conferences, just like we have in Turfgrass. There's conferences on epistemology, trying, you know, various philosophers are developing different strategies and arguing past strategies and figuring out what's best and what's not and what's reality and what's not and all these things. So we might not go that deep, but that's what we're here for. You know, you might be doing something and you might be believing that it's valid and true, but how do you know, you know, what's the justification for that belief and that practice? So that's kind of what we do here. We provide reviews of the scientific literature to hopefully provide justification for management practices that you're doing. And if you're seeing in the literature information that is in contrast to your practices, I hope you reconsider those practices, you know. I know I've done a lot of that in the past where we do certain things and come to find out it wasn't valid. You know, we thought it was true. I believed it was true. But somebody publishes something and we realize it's not. There's an old paper. In fact, maybe I can find it. I can't. It's, uh, it's going to take me some time to find that paper. There's an old paper from like the 1920s where... Um, it was a USGA, it was the, it was prior to the USGA green section. It was called the USGA something. I can't remember. And in there, there was an article about using gasoline engine discharge to kill moles in on golf courses. So they, they would literally do like, <laughs> you know, what like Wiley coyote would do to the, to the road runner or something. They would, stick a hose on the end of a tailpipe from a leaded gasoline engine and go and stick the hose down in the hole and, uh, you know, kill moles and the, the different mole mole runs. So that's, that's an indication where that's something where they believed it was true. It probably was true. They, and then, you know, come to find out it's environmentally a disaster. I mean, you can't be doing that. So there's, <clears throat> that's just an example of things that we used to do and, might think it's think it's true and then we, you know we change our behavior we change our management practices there's a whole slew of 
pesticides that aren't used anymore. My great grandfather actually died. He had liver failure when he was in his late forties or early fifties. And, um, you know, he was a farmer and <clears throat> he, we, he, he, at the time he, he, ma he managed probably, I don't know, three or 400 acres, nothing huge, but of, of agricultural crops. And, um, he died of liver failure and what he used to do, he had those old, uh, metal spray rigs. You would pull behind a, well, at the time when he started, he pulled behind probably some mules or some horses, but he would, he would spray his fields with this material in this spray rig and he would mix it in the spray rig with a wooden spoon in his hand. He would just mix these insecticides in there, you know? And at the time, that's what a lot of people did. And I'd have to go back and look and see what insecticide it was, but you can only imagine the insecticides in the 1930s and forties that they were spraying out back then. And again, another example where we just don't do what we used to do because we've learned, learned and we know better now. And yeah, it may, it might, you know, be a useful tool for your crops or for the pests that you're trying to manage, but the risk is so great to human life and well-being that it's no longer allowed. So, you know, that's sort of what we do here. We look at the literature and figure out what's best, what's not best for your situation. And do you have justification for it? And if you do, is there environmental consequences and so forth? Anyway, welcome. I had an interesting weekend. <clears throat> on on Thursday, my um my son, as you probably know, if I, if you if you listen to any any of the prior shows, is autistic, high functioning autistic, and he comes home on the school bus. Which at the beginning of the school year, we were like, can he even do that? You know, can he get to the school bus? Can he get on and off it and walk home? You know, and so forth. Can he do these things? So far, it's working okay but on thursday he, he gets all he gets home at every at same time every every day it's like 4 10 4 15. well 4 10, on thursday 4 10 comes around and he's not here i'm outside working in the yard 4 15 comes around he's not here 4 20 comes around and usually i see the other neighbors kids walk by my window and look that they're on the same bus i didn't see him because i was in the yard but I texted the neighbors, moms and dads. And I was like, Hey, did your kids come home? And they said, yeah, they're home. I said, well, was Brandon on the bus? And they talked to their kids and they said they didn't see him. Um, but he's been known to sit on the bus and miss his bus stop because he's not paying attention. So I'm like, well, maybe he didn't get off the bus, you know? So I called the bus yard, make a long, it was a long convoluted situation, but the bus yard said, no, the bus driver already went home and I don't, we don't know. We can't contact him. We don't know if he's on the bus or not off the bus, or we have no idea. I'm like, well, thanks. That's kind of useless. <laughs> there shouldn't there be some sort of document or electronic thing where a, a human being is getting on your bus and getting off your bus, but I guess they don't do that. So I called the police, I called my wife first, and then I called the police. And I said, Hey, uh, my, my son didn't get off the bus. I don't know where he is. What do you, what am I supposed to do? And by that time I'm driving to the, to the middle school, you know, I have no idea where he's at. So I'm driving to the middle school on the phone with the, with the police. And I said, uh, what do I do? 
They said, we'll go to the school, see if he's at school. I said, is there any, you know, is he in football or is he in anything like that? I said, no, there's no reason for him to be at school unless he just missed the bus, you know, but he's never missed the bus from school, but there's no reason for him to be at school. You know, and he said, okay, go to school. It was 445, I think at the time, school was about to close. They said, see if he's there, whether he's there or whether he's not there call us back. So, okay. So I went to the bus, I went to the school. Nobody's opening the door. No one's in the office. I'm banging on the door. I got my seven year old daughter bugging me because I had to pull out of her friend's house. She doesn't know what's going on. Well, just coincidentally, the principal happens to walk by the school and the school is huge. It has 1100 kids in it from sixth, seventh, and eighth grades. He happens to walk by the door and it's all locked up like Fort Knox. You know, you can't get in. He opens the door and I said, he said, can I help you? I said, Hey, my I don't know where my son is. Can you, you know, I know, I knew he was the principal. He didn't know me, I'm sure from Adam, but I say, can you help me? He's like, yeah, sure. Very friendly. We go in. I say, can you even see if he got to school? Like, can you check the attendance? Cause normally I get an email saying he's late or something. I didn't get that. So we checked the attendance. He actually showed up to school. It's like, can you see if he actually left school? And I go, no, we don't do that. We don't know when to actually leave. I say, well, what do I do? You know? How do I kind of walk through the school? I mean, what do I do? It's a huge school. <clears throat> so he <clears throat> he announced on the loudspeaker, if Brandon's in the school, you know, come come to the front. So by this time, I'm my, my wife and I are freaking out, right? I've never had a situation where, you know, my kid is just missing. You know, we're probably in a little, we're like 45 minutes into this thing. Don't even know where he's at. And so he makes the announcement, puts the phone down puts the announcer speaker thing down. My, my daughter's in the hallway. I'm in the office. My mom, my mom, my wife's calling me. You can only imagine if you're a parent, you know, what's going through your head, you know? And, um, you know, he, he's autistic. What are you going to do? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he, he couldn't find his way home from, you know, two blocks away. So I'm thinking, what do you do? You just start walking home. He, there's no way he's ever going to get home. You know I mean? What do you do if you miss the bus? I don't know. I don't know the system. So the principal is like, well, you know, we made an announcement. Let's check the gymnasium. We'll go out and check outside. You know, we'll, let's see what we can find. So we go to the gymnasium. There's like 40 or 50 kids in there. He's not in there. So we start walking back out and Lisa goes, my, my daughter goes, Hey, Brandon. And I was like, what? And I walk out in the hallway and he starts, he's walking towards me. He's like, Hey dad. I'm like, what are you doing? Why, what, what are you? And he's just acting like it's a normal day. Wife and I are about to have a heart attack. He's like, Oh, I was in math, math, uh, competition. I was like, it's, it's Thursday. Math competitions are on Wednesday. He goes, I don't know. They said there was a math competition on, on, in seventh period. So I stayed in school. I was like, oh my God. I mean, math and practice and math competition is every Wednesday. In this one week, they move it to Thursday and freak me out and my wife out because I can't find my kid. Anyway, we found him. Good God. It was a nightmare. So my friends who know me from years ago, when I was most, so I'm saying all that to say I'm, I'm going to have to buy him a watch now. 
I'm very reluctant to buy him a phone and a watch. I'm old school stuff or whatever. I mean, it's okay if you got a watch for your kid or phone for your kid. I just, I just sort of hesitate to do that. One, because he's autistic and he gets distracted by anything. He'll sit and stare at the mirror. We have to cover all the mirrors in our house because if there's a mirror exposed, he'll sit and stare at the mirror for hours. So we have that, that's the level that we're dealing with. So anything that will distract him from schoolwork, we we try to minimize. So I don't get him a watch. I don't get him a phone. My, even my friends back back in years ago, when I was in my 20s and 30s, they would call me grandpa because I'm so I'm like I'm 47 now, going on 97. I'm just old. <laughs> I act old. I walk slow. I talk slow. You know, even at my most active years, you know, when I was doing grad school and competing and traveling and fighting and training and, you know, teaching for six, seven hours a week. I mean, even then when I was most active, they would still call me grandpa. Cause I just, Oh, we're going to go out, Travis. You know, it's, you know, 10 o'clock. I'm like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I got a test in the morning. You know, I got an assignment due or whatever. I'm not going to go out. They would, so they're you, they know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's, the, that's, that's where I'm coming from is like, I don't want to get him a watch, but if you're, if you're going to get lost, you know, and I can't find you, I'm going to have to apparently figure out some way to keep track of you. So, so now after, after the thing today, I got to go buy a watch. I have no idea what to buy him. Cause I got to figure out some way to just have like GPS on it and a, and a clock. Cause otherwise it's going to distract him and it'll be a disaster. So that was my Thursday, not the funnest time. This weekend was an awesome weekend. I had like probably 25 people over here. We have some friends from Brazil that are going back to Sao Paulo and, um, they've never experienced Thanksgiving. So they came over here and we cooked an early Thanksgiving meal for, I don't know, 20 or 25 Brazilians and neighbors and stuff. It was great. I make this um, sweet potato casserole that everybody likes. But Thanksgiving food's the best for me. I love it. It's easy to make. I mean, it just takes time, you know. But I had a good weekend doing that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I had to go out and I've had, I have, I mow, I mow my lawn with an auto mower. And this whole some this whole year, I've had to push mow my lawn because the automower has been disconnected because I was redoing some construction in my backyard. So I've had no wires in the ground. And I'll say this about automowers. I love automowers cutting the grass. I don't want to mow my grass. I don't want to fertilize my grass or water it or I don't want to do anything to my lawn. I don't want to spray it. I do some minor upkeep and minor maintenance for weeds and things occasionally. But I don't want to do anything to it. And the auto mower, I have, I don't know what, how many, like 8,300 square feet or something of, of turf. I don't want to, and it's super sloped, very steep property. I don't want to walk up and down that dang thing. So I got an auto mower years ago and I love that thing. It's awesome. It's very, very steep slope. It's not a four by four auto mower. The newer ones, it's an older one and it still will get up that hill. It'll do a good job and I like it, but I'm going to give you some reasons. I'll give you some reasons to use one. If you ever want to use an automower one, it works and you don't have to mow your lawn. I mean, the hours you spend mowing your lawn and buying gasoline for your mower and all these things, you don't have to do that. I mean, it's just that simple. 
you turn it on and you set it, get it set correctly. You know, takes a few seasons, you know, a few months to kind of get it set correctly on the timing and things like that. But once you get it set, it's awesome. However, the disadvantages are it will find every conceivable possible hole and root and stick in your lawn and get stuck on it the first year. It, it takes about a year to figure out all the little holes and stuff and get stuck in and fix them. It's like having a dog when you've never had a dog in your fence. You'll, the dog is going to find every hole in your fence and then you eventually go and patch it up. It's the same thing. You have to find every stick and every root and every hole and, and get it fixed the first year because get, it'll get caught 15, 20 times. But once you get that fixed, it's fine. Um, so that's one problem. The second problem is, is I don't care what the marketing says on those automowers. You cannot have an automower in a location where you have a lot of trees and a lot of leaf litter in the fall and expect it to keep up with the leaf litter. It's not going to cut up those leaves anywhere near as good as a regular mower. And in the amount of trees, I've, I've removed most of my trees, but I still have so many leaves falling from my neighbor's trees that it's just not enough to keep up with the leaf litter. So you're going to have to have an auto, a regular mower or a blower and a rake or something to remove those leaves in the fall because it's just a lot of leaves. They can't keep up with it. But the most <clears throat> most annoying thing, and by the way, the advantages far outweigh the, the, the disadvantages. The advantages are awesome. I mean, I'm not getting rid of that thing. I love that thing. But the other disadvantage is you got to have wires in the ground. And I know the newer models, you don't need to have wires. But I have one of the older models where you have a wire in the ground like, a, like an invisible dog fence. And it's going to get cut. One way or the other, it's going to get cut. The automower's cut cut it twice in the three or four years I've had it. Um, <clears throat> whether you're digging and you happen to have a wire and a flower bed you put in or something, you're going to cut it. I had one tree fall out here from my neighbor's lawn. The tree was so big it uprooted into my yard. And the uprooted roots pulled the wire and snapped the wire. This was just uh, this last January. Then I had one, the, the border was... Uh, I made a little island thing around a tree so it wouldn't get caught. That tree fell over, the cherry tree fell over, and it snapped that wire. There's always wires getting cut. It's a huge annoyance. <clears throat> and so what happens is when those wires get cut, you got to go in and start, you got to set it all back up. And since my mower's been out there disconnected for a year now, I guess, last November was the last time I used it, these wires have been, trees have fallen over, and things have been cut. And so now I go back to set it up. And you see that little blue light blinking means that there's a boundary wire disconnected, right? It's not connected. So you have to go track down where the disconnect is in the, in the boundary wire, which is annoying to say the least, if not impossible in some cases. So all this week, <laughs> I got to go out and figure out, I kicked, I reconnected it, charged it all up and everything's running, but the boundary wire is cut somewhere. And I got to go figure out where this boundary wire is cut. <clears throat> so that's a big long window way to say I spent all day yesterday trying to get that automower running and I couldn't get it running because, I mean, it's working, but it doesn't cut because there's no boundary wire signal loop. There's no loop signal that's connected. So, and there's no way to do it unless to, to figure out where the boundary wire is, just easily do it. You can't just go, oh, here's a, here's where it is. Cause once the boundary wire is cut, the mower stops. So it, you can't like run it. Like say you're running along the 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 um the wire to know the distance where you want it to stop and start cutting, you it won't run that distance and then stop where the where the where the wire's cut, right? So I gotta go do that. Annoying, but it's worth the time. 
because I spend when it's running well and everything's fine. I you know, last two or three years once you get it running, I spend about thirty or forty minutes a year on the mower, and all I do is change the blades. It takes me like five minutes to change the blades. I change the blades once a month, so it's minimal input that you have, and um, there's no noise. It's always cut. You don't have to walk up and down it. You don't have to store gasoline or oil or big mowers or anything like that. So I'm a big automower guy. I like automowers, but you know, I got to figure out how well these wireless systems work, <laughs> you know, maybe upgrade mine somehow or buy a new one to get a wireless system. Cause these wires are a pain in the neck. Um, anyway, that's the news. That's what happened this weekend. We're going to be looking at the last fall fertility study that I'm going to cover for quite a while. And we're going to change topics tomorrow. So last time we, we talked was on Thursday of last week, and we talked about a study that was in Italy. And we saw very similar results or um, conclusions to that study that was in an environment similar to the Northwest U.S. as, the, as research that was conducted in the Northwest U.S., where you can kind of go out a little later sometimes in the year because the environment is more of a Mediterranean climate and it stays a little warmer and it's a little more moist in the later fall than say, you know, mid Atlantic or the, you know, middle of the United States where it gets cold and everything's already shut down. Now we're going to take the last opportunity here or one for a while and go over a paper that is in a different country in Canada. So, um, up there in Saskatchewan, this is where the study was conducted in Saskatchewan. We're dealing with a much different client or climate than pretty much anywhere. Well, not anywhere in the United States, but most of the United States. The University of Saskatchewan is several hours north of the United States border if you're driving. Um, so it is pretty cold up there. Okay. And so we're going to see what happens whenever um cool season turf grasses are fertilized with organic and inorganic in sources when it's that cold okay so the title of today's paper is summer color and fall color retention of kentucky bluegrass receiving varying amounts in timing of inorganic and inorganic plus organic combinations of of nitrogen this uh publication this is by nelson in 1980 and it was published in the Canadian Journal of Plant Science. Now, I'm not real familiar with that journal in terms of its quality or, um, you know, how confident I can be in the information. Uh, I've never really, I've never published anything in it. I don't have any reason to publish anything in it. I don't, it could be a great journal or not. I have no idea. I will say that this particular publication is not real easy to follow. I, I even hesitated to even show it because it's not entirely clear. The results are a little bit difficult to understand and follow. They, the, 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 the verbiage is clear when they write it, but the tables are not easy to follow. So we'll, I'll do my best. But um, this is a reason I'm saying all that is to say this is that I wouldn't put a whole lot of confidence in this paper. It just adds to, you know, what we've been going over. Um, but I wouldn't hold it up and swear to it in court that, you know, everything in here is the way you should do it. I mean, it could be, it could be valid, 
it, you know, it's in, it's consistent with what we've seen before in other locations, but I just don't know the Canadian journal of plant science. I don't know how good it is. And as you've heard me talk about before, there's other journals that are absolutely horrible. And I'll go over some of those journals. Believe me, some of them are just awful and they publish turf grass stuff. And, um, it's a shame because it's oftentimes seen as an equivalent, um, as, as equivalent to crop science or agronomy journal or something like that. And they're not, and often as a reviewer, I've reviewed many papers in some of those really bad journals and I recommend rejecting the papers and they still get published. So it'll give you an idea is the quality of the work is, you know, suspect in some of these other journals in this particular journal. I don't know. Okay. Um, if you're new to the channel, you'll see some whiteout sections, not a whole lot in this paper, but, um, it's just to kind of keep me on track. Most of this was in, uh, what I whited out was in French, but anyway, I'm going to go through the introduction just briefly. This isn't a very long paper at all. And I'm, I'd like to spend a little more time on the materials and methods because it's not entirely clear exactly what happened. <laughs> I'm just saying that up front. When I go to read the tables, I'm, I'm almost guaranteed. And I'm, I don't know if the author is still alive or not. This was published, you know, 40 years ago, but I would have had him on because it's not clear what happened to me anyway. But the, you know, when at the end, the conclusions and the discussion, he makes it clear what, what they found, but it's just not easy to follow. As with all other publications, the introduction sets the stage. With Kentucky Bluegrass, um, Wilkinson and Duff have reported that late fall applications of inorganic nitrogen improved fall and winter color. So w what we've been going over in the last several weeks is fall fertility of cool season grasses. And there is a... A num there are a number of publications that we've gone over that have shown the uh, soluble in is tends to be tends to result in a greater color and growth, especially early in the fall, like September timeframe, well before the grass starts to really slow down. Really, when the grass is increasing its growth and really growing at its maximum rate for that season, coming out of the fall, or coming out of the summer, sort of lull or dormancy, it's coming out. It's really starting to grow. That's the time when you really want to put it out, wherever, whatever time that is in your location. As the grass begins to decline in its growth, again, that's going to depend on where you are in your location. You want to really start slowing down the amount of soluble in you, you apply. But in either case, whether it's early in the fall or late in the fall, the use of soluble in is um, preferred even under environmental condition, either on, even when you're considering the environmental consequences. And the reason is because the slow release nitrogen sources, it's simply just too cold in most settings to release any amount of nitrogen for the plant to take it up. So you're applying a product that is slow to release at a time of year when the grass is already starting to slow down. So when you put it out, when you put out a soluble, it's there that day or, and you know, soon thereafter for plant uptake and you need to get the plant to uptake that nitrogen as soon as you can after you've applied it in the fall whereas those slow release in sources stay there for a long time without releasing and by the time they you know get to the point where they might start releasing the plant might have already shut down and the argument is well we're just going to put it down and then it'll be available later on 
or it'll be there throughout the throughout the winter and it'll start releasing the spring and what we've shown is is that you can you can do that if you wanted to there's still going to be some color or you can just avoid all that environmental risk and by applying those those fertilizers when the grass is not growing avoid that by not applying it then and then just apply some soluble in in the early spring with you know a week or two or three before the grass starts to grow again and the spring comes out of dormancy and starts to grow again you can put some soluble in down and you'll have that uh there available when the grass starts to grow rather than put it out slow release and then let it sit there all winter and at the end of today i'm gonna go to a website that talks about fall uh, talks about dormant fertilizer applying fertilizer during dormancy as a means to show you you know the the level of indoctrination the level of marketing that will go that they'll go into to convince you to put uh buy their product and put it down when the evidence doesn't support that okay so I'll look for that at the end of today. I'll, I'll open up a website and I'll go through a little, a short little article and, and you know, it's, it's not going to be shocking because they're going to say, buy our product and put it down. And, and if you're only going to put it down during these months, they're going to lose market and they're going to lose, lose margin. So they're arguing, well, just put it down anytime, even including when the grass isn't growing. And clearly I hope by this point, after 10 or 15, 20 publications we've gone through, you, um, are, at least convinced or or beginning to be convinced that applying these nitrogen sources whether it's soluble or slow when the grass is not growing is unwise environmentally and economically so let's continue sorry the observations by wilkinson and duff have been confirmed by by various other authors and he he cites this author cites various other authors hinderlong showed similar results from winter applications and he goes through various publication showing inorganic nitrogen re results in a, in a decent response is what he goes through here and he has all sorts of publications and we've gone through a lot of these the carolyn um the carolyn wallington paper the wilkinson and duff paper um the the powell papers i think were in here somewhere i don't remember where he's i think he had the powell papers in here somewhere. we've gone through a lot of these papers okay i'm not going to read through all these things um <clears throat> the growth promoting if so here so uh, let me get back even though organic and slow release forms resulted in less leaching of nitrogen under conditions in texas anonymous 75 i don't know what that means there's whatever ken bacher and sherman reported that urea formaldehyde mill organite and sulfur coated urea were poorly absorbed in nebraska okay this ken bacher sherman 76 sometimes what happens let me go down to the citations sometimes what happens is they'll cite a um an abstract so utilization of, ni of nitrogen from various let me see what where that was published yeah see so when i wish people we would stop doing that scientists okay when, when it says it says basically slow release and organite and sulfur coat what, what did the, what did it say up here at the top it says uh has a really good quote you know the growth and promotion of uh urea from on high milorganite and sulfur coated urea were poorly absorbed okay well i'd like to know more about that right so you go down here and you look at it kim bacher and sherman in 1976 utilization of nitrogen from various nitrogen carriers from by turf grass and then it says agronomy abstract okay when you see that <clears throat> what that is is it an abstract is the uh, citation of um the 
presentation that was given at an annual meeting and they they publish all those abstracts when you when you go to give a meeting go give a presentation at a meeting you have to submit a title and authors and year and the abstract of the presentation and then they you go there and you give the presentation but they'll publish all that in a book format usually but it'll publish it in what's called the agronomy abstracts and there's probably some sitting back on my desk behind me um and that's how they cite that presentation but you can't go into those and actually look and find out what they published and, and it's not a publication in the sense it's a refereed publication it's just a it's the abstract of a presentation that they gave so i wish we'd stop doing that and it, it, at least to the same degree we do now you know cite a refereed article or cite a periodical if you need to but these abstracts you'll set you'll set you'll you'll quote something quite profound like you know, urea formaldehyde, morganite, sulfur-coated urea were poorly absorbed in Nebraska. I want to know more about that, but when I go to the abstract, I can't find it. So then you go and pull the book, the abstract book, and you can, all you can read is just the short little blurb about it. Well, that doesn't give me what I want to know either. It's annoying as heck. Anyway, sorry. So you're not going to find this information um, by going and looking at this this little information. You're not going to find that by going and looking at that citation, unfortunately. All right, Ohio... Ohio, Davis and Scoglian King, 1968, reported that the performance of process tankage in Rhode Island was rather poor compared to other forms of slow-release nitrogen. So he has two citations showing that natural organics, in this one case, uh, process tankage, and the other case, uh, millorganite, don't really do well. He has two citations for that. Okay, so in the, he's basically setting a case where, you know, we are applying soluble in the spring. Other authors have found they can apply um, slow release in the spring. Sometimes they find good things. Some, most of the time they don't. You know, they're setting a stage. So <clears throat> we'll skip through here and see if we can get to the... Uh, okay, infinite... Inf let me see if this is the objective. Em emphasis has been placed on the green color development of the turf in the spring. And the experiments were continued so that more, fre more frequent observations could be made in the fall and green color retention as a result of the different applications rates during the summer. Um, yeah, he didn't really put in there the, the objectives early spring green color, which was positively correlated to the amount of inorganic in applied in the main fertilizer program. The year previous has been reported by Nelson and the lack of similar correlation when two of the three applications during the summer were pro were processed sewage and only one application was uh, he's just going through previous previous stuff and yeah, it's a little bit dis disconnected there so he's going to be looking at soluble and organic or inorganic and organic nitrogen sources on turf grass response is what he's and he's just setting the stage so let's he has two different experiments in here i'm going to go through both the materials and methods but i'm really going to really only go over the experiment two uh in terms of the results because it, it's the one that it can compares the nitrogen sources um established experiment one established kentucky bluegrass uh, randomized in four applications were treated with five fertilizer formulations. Now, I don't know why he says this in here because he doesn't show the results from five formula for fertilizations unless he just blended all these together somehow. I don't know what happened, but you don't see differences in the, in the tables of ammonium nitrate compared to ammonium nitrate phosphate. I'm not sure why this was included, but anyway, he has ammonium nitrate phosphate, ammonium nitrate phosphate with a different formulation, Ammonium nitrate phosphate sulfate with a different formulation and monoammonium phosphate. A lot of a lot of different nitrogen sources to give these rates. So he applied in the, in the first uh, study. He applied it basically three quarters of a pound in and 
looks like two and a half and all the way up to five, five and a half or five pounds of N. In each of the four year commencing in 1974, the N was applied in three equal, this, this is important, the N was applied in three equal subdivisions on approximately the 12th of May, the 24th of June, and the 5th of August. So he's applying all these nitrogen sources at the end of spring or the beginning of spring all the way through to the middle of the summer. As well, combinations of two applications of ammonium nitrate and one application of each of the fertilizer of each of the other fertilizer formulations substituted in each of the applications were used to give greater variability from the four pound to five and a half pounds of nitrogen range and to study any effects of timing with low nitrogen rates. Now, I read that quickly. I've read this 10 times and I don't really understand what he did. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't, I would try to translate this in the layman's terms, but it's not easy to understand what he did in experiment one because he has all these different nitrogen sources but nowhere in the results are you going to see differences in nitrogen sources. He just applied ni various nitrogen sources at different rates. Okay. And he even applied ammonium nitrate in, in one application. It's, it's confusing. But don't, don't worry about it too much because experiment two is really what I'm worried about or what I'm concerned about, interested in. Experiment two, replication plot size and commencement date and the dates of application are the same as in experiment one, except that the plots were only maintained until the end of 1976. Organic nitrogen in the form of processed sewage is 630. I don't know the brand that he where he got this from, but a 630 is very similar to any municipal biosolid that you'd buy today. It might be a 520 or a 640 or 620 or something like that. You're very familiar with all the brand names. Was applied at either 0. Point, oh, so this would be um, a little less than a pound of N or a little more than a pound of N. Okay. So he applied organic nitrogen from a municipal biosolid at roughly two-thirds of a pound of N. I have to do the math on that, but two-thirds of a pound. Let me do the math since I'm sitting here. So 60% of it. So yeah, a little less than two-thirds of a pound of N or, or one, and, one and a quarter pound of N. Okay. In each of each of two applications and these were combined with one application of ammonium nitrate phosphate at a pound and a half or so of nitrogen or i guess a pound and a half of the product or ammonium phosphate see it's just it's just confusing at a little it's just really confusing so so the, the basically what happened was he went and he, they applied an organic a municipal biosolid at a little less than a pound of N or a little more than a pound of N. And then the um, ammonium nitrate phosphate or ammonium phosphate was substituted in at certain times. The inorganic forms were substituted for the organic form on each of the three application dates, giving a seasonal range of from two pounds to a little less than four pounds. Unbelievably comp complicated way of saying something that could have been clearer but uh, when i get to the tables it'll it'll make more sense where they're applying natural organics and then they substitute that application with an inorganic nitrogen source okay and you'll see what happens and if they're doing it throughout they're at the be, um, beginning of middle of may the end of june and the beginning of august and they did this at 
like I said, in Saskatchewan, Canada, in, in, in two or three hours north of the United States border at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. So we're quite cold on Kentucky bluegrass. Don't forget. 75, part of the 1976 season. Okay, so I'm not going to read this. Basically, they did color for part of the season through using a color chart in the old days. Even now, there's occasionally someone will pop up and say, hey, why don't we use a Munsell color chart or something or some designated color rating that comes from a book rather than just rating it with the eye. And inevitably, what happens is they realize that the correlation is strong with the actual color uh, color evaluation from the human being but the time to do it is immense <laughs> using the the color charts so they just kind oh, of forget the color charts we'll just do it by hand you know because it's it's much faster it's it's just as accurate or close to being is just as accurate as spending all that time trying to do it with the color so that's what they did they started with the book and did it with colored uh squares and then after that, they started doing it by eye. <laughs> That's basically that simple. And they were doing this in 76. So it's nothing every now and then every five or 10 years, someone will pop up and try to do it objectively using some color books. And then they eventually never catches on because it's, it's basically the same as doing it with the eye, but it's just a lot more time and money. Okay. So that's the setting. All right, guys and gals. Um, I'm going to skip through to the tables because or uh, let, let's skip through okay to the, some, some of the text at the bottom and i'll read the read the tables this is in experiment one i'm not going to talk i'm not going to talk a whole lot about experiment one because it, it's a little bit it's just a little bit disjointed and they table and uh, experiment two is the one where we want to spend more of our time experiment one where we're you know it does appear however the low level of nitrogen which is a pound and uh, maybe three quarters applied as this is dimonium ammonium phosphate 11480 would be insufficient in most years for summer months okay so they applied dimonium phosphate at a pound and three quarters in the summer you know those 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 application dates may uh, june and then august and it, it appears that's not sufficient for acceptable turf grass color in saskatchewan canada in some seasons the two and a half pounds of nitrogen applied in the 1620-0 would be insufficient. So there's another source here that said it would be insufficient. Neither formulation is normally recommended. Here's, here's the reason I highlighted this. Neither of these formulations is normally recommended for turf culture because of the low nitrogen ratio and the buildup of phosphate that would occur if used in amount sufficient to obtain necessary nitrogen. Now, We've gone over phosphorus from biosolids. We've gone over the long-term effects of applications of biosolids in prior papers. And if I had any idea how to link those things in a little thing, everybody always does this on YouTube. They go, oh, I'll link it right here. I have no idea how to do that. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't. Link those studies. But you can go back and look at the um, previous uh, uh, episodes that I've done. And... That is very clear that the application of these low nitrogen to high phosphorus fertilizers, this ratio is very, very low to N, N to P, over years can result in a, in a tremendous increase in phosphorus in the soil, well beyond anything you would ever use, which greatly increases the potential of environmental risk as a, as a result of all that phosphorus being in the soil. And what he's saying in 1976, this is nothing new today. He's saying that neither of these formulations, the 11480 or the 1620O, 
are normally recommended for turf grass because in order to put down the amount of nitrogen you need to get a response, you're going to greatly inflate the amount of phosphorus. So please don't forget that. Okay, when we're, when we're fertilizing turf grass, we're starting with nitrogen and we're never going to change or add anything to that unless we have a good reason. We're going to stick with nitrogen. We're probably going to stick with urea, maybe ammonium sulfate in some cases. And we're not going to change. The evidence is extremely clear on this, that anytime you change, you're going to increase your cost. In the case of these N to P ratios being very low, if you change to those, you're going to apply the amount of nitrogen you need. It's very clear you're going to increase the amount of phosphorus you're applying. In cases where you don't need it, it's a huge problem. Okay, And they knew that 47 years ago. 1976. Okay, I didn't do that math in my head that quick. I know it's 47 years ago because I was born in 1976 and I'm 47. <laughs> I'm not that bright, guys. I can't do that math that quick. So 47 years ago, they knew, you know, shouldn't really be applying these nitrogen sources that have these high phosphorus in them because you're greatly inflating phosphorus. So please, please keep that in mind, guys. I, I know, oh, it's natural organic. N natural, there's nothing particularly better about natural organic products okay it's it's it there's oh it's natural so it's better that is no it's, it doesn't mean it's better just because it's natural and in this case when it comes to fertilizer it's actually worse for the environment because you got every goofball in, in in your neighborhood putting out natural organic because they think they're helping the environment and they're putting out all this phosphorus everywhere We've got to stop this before, you know, our elected officials start regulating it. We don't, and I'm not a fan of regulation, but in cases where you got every goofball in the city putting out fertilizer with phosphorus in it when they don't need to, you're, you're causing issues or you're greatly increasing the risk of issues downstream for, to all the other citizens who are part of the community and part of our ecosystem. So pl please, you know, refrain from putting out phosphorus unless you have a diagnosed deficiency. Okay. All right, we continue. For four years, the result from September to the end of the season were consistent, except for 1976 when an above normal number of degree days in July, August, and September prolonged the summer season and delayed loss of color. So in 1976, they got a warmer season and the color extended out into the fall. As exemplified in Table 1, the retention of green color in the fall was highly correlated with the amount of nitrogen applied during the main fertilizer season of May to August. The high amounts of actual N in the main fertilizer program allowed the grass to retain color in the fall against the stresses exerted by lower growing temperature. So all it's saying is it was warmer that year. It was able to extend the color into the fall and the nitrogen effect was more pronounced because of that. Okay. So the opposite is obviously true where the other seasons where it didn't get so warm and the grass shut down earlier, the the the, turf, the the nitrogen didn't have as much of an effect later in the fall. Okay, and you'll see that down here in this table. So this is the November, this is what they're doing ratings in June all the way to November. And this is sort of reverse where the nitrogen, I'm looking at a table here, on the left-hand side you have dates, June 3rd all the way to November 14th. And we're looking at columns where uh, the the column header is the, the different rate of nitrogen. So we start at about three or a pound and three quarters of a pound of nitrogen, and we go all the way up to about five pounds of nitrogen. And you'll see as you go down these uh, this column, the turf color stays, you know, goes up and stays where it's at, and then it starts to decline once you get into October and November in Saskatchewan, Canada. Okay, 
So once you get down here into late October, early November, it's declining even with five pounds in. Okay. If you go down here to a pound and a quarter, a pound and three quarters pound in, the magnitude of response isn't quite as great where you, where you see 3.3s over here in the high of five pounds, you see 6.7s. Okay. So the, obviously you're playing more nitrogen, you're getting greater responses and from, from the turf, but it's still going to shut down whether you applied a little bit or a lot, it's still going to decline and shut down. 2.7 is, is unacceptable. So, but as, as if you applied only a pound and a half or pound and three quarters, it's going to be zero. So the turf is going to be completely brown in Saskatchewan, Canada in November, if you only applied a pound and three quarters through the summer. And that stays consistent pretty much across the board. You know, you're going to have an unacceptable turf grass, regardless of the rate of nitrogen you put down in November. Okay. So putting down these <clears throat> October and November applications, they didn't do that in this case, but at this time of year, the reason I'm showing this is the grass is already shutting down and it's shut down. It's basically shut down by the, it's shutting down by the beginning of October in Saskatchewan. All these are sixes and fives at the beginning of October. Okay. So and they were, whereas they were sevens and sixes and, um, you know, two weeks, per, two weeks prior to that date. So that two week period, it goes from seven twenty seven point two five to six and a half in two weeks. It's starting to shut down. So that's a, a sign or an, uh, an example that you should probably already have your nitrogen down by that point. That grass is slowing down and it's going to stop. So you should also be using that. You should be slowing down to stopping your nitrogen applications because that's what the turf grass is doing. You get sure this nitrogen application rate, you can see right here, goes from 3.75 to 5.38. If you go from a pound and three quarters to five pounds, you can, you can prolong that. You can definitely have an effect on that as it's, as it's slowing down. You can, you can, uh, increase the color by applying more nitrogen. There's no question about that, but it's still going to shut down. You know, it's still going to slow down and shut down. So keep that in mind. All right. Now let's get to, let's, let's get to experiment two. Uh, you can read all about this if you want to. I'm going to only read the highlight points. The summer results confirm the results of experiment one and those of Wilkinson 77 that relatively small amounts of nitrogen are needed to maintain color under good growing conditions. <clears throat> relatively small amounts of nitrogen are required. That's what he said. Organic nitrogen fertilizers, according to Scogli 1967, has been used during summer as a safer form of fertilization because there is less tendency to burn. Now, I haven't published this, and I'm, I doubt I ever do. Well, I don't know. I have two locations. I have enough data. I could probably publish it in Hort Tech or something, or who knows. But before I left UK, I did a collaborative research project with um, University of Florida on Bermuda grass. And this idea of burn, you'll see tables and uh, various phyto potentials in, in uh, books where they say, you know, ammonium sulfate is a greater burn potential than urea and urea is, you know, whatever, less burn potential than organics or whatever. <clears throat> but there's really not been a whole lot of work done on that to actually know how, you know, what is, how much nitrogen can you put down and be, to be safe from these sources. So we went and did that uh, probably whatever it was, 2020 or 2019, I can't remember. And we used all the normal or uh, natural or, or uh, nitrogen sources. And we went from zero in, and I think we went up to 10 pounds of in. I have to go back and oh, that's it. Uh, I have to go back and look 10 pounds in, and we used natural organics. Now in order to put down 10 pounds of in from a natural organic, 
you're talking about basically top dressing the entire turf with that material. It's black. Okay. Literally there's more, if you, t- if you put down 10 pounds of in, which don't do, we were doing this for rates and burn potential and FIDO and science and research projects and so forth. So that's not what I'm telling you to do. But in our case, we wanted to know, could you burn turf grass at what rate will ammonium sulfate burn? I think we were doing it on, um, latitude. I think it was latitude 36. At what rate will urea burn latitude 36? At what rate will sulfur code and so forth? At what rate will natural organic? And I'll say this, very, very few of them burned because we were following best management practices. We were watering them in and so forth. Very few of them burned. But natural organics at 10 pounds, it's completely black. Okay. You have, you're dealing, there's literally, you can't do a green rating color because there's so much material on the plot. It's just black. But it didn't burn. You go out there. I went out there before I left UK two years ago or two years after I put that study out. You could still see these super green squares from that that massive application of natural organic. So you're not going to burn turf grass with a natural organic unless you you cut it with something else. You cut it with ammonium sulfate or some sulfur acid or something. You're not going to burn it with natural organic. So that is definitely an advantage. Um, and I, I beat up on natural organic sometimes because the amount of phosphorus is going out is unnecessary and, and it causes problems, but you're not going to burn turf grass with natural organic, almost any rate you go out at. So that, that is definitely an advantage, um, that it has over some other nitrogen sources. We continue green color in the fall was less responsive to the levels of summer, apl- summer applied combinations of inorganic and organic nitrogen than when inorga- when inorganic N was used alone. Read that again. Because it's kind of, the way they say it is a little bit, it's, it's a profound statement, but they say it's sort of, it's hidden. Green color in the fall was less responsive to the levels of summer applied combinations of inorganic and organic then when inorganic was used alone, in other words, the inorganic is giving you a more, pro, more pronounced in, impact. When you cut it with organic, you're not getting that response as near to the degree as you are with straight inorganic. Okay. So there again, more evidence as to justify the use of inorganic nitrogen in the fall on cool season turf grasses. Because when you use organic with it, the response is reduced. Okay, so here's really the only table in the whole study that's you know that I'm interested in kind of going over. It's really odd, but I'll try to make it make sense. On the left, you have the dates, September, the dates of rating, September 3rd, 14th, all the way to November 30th. And then the next column is the amount of inorganic that was used. It's we're still talking about treatments. It was either a little less than a pound or a little more than a pound, a little less than a pound, a little more than a pound. And then they cut it with the organic or they they did the opposite. The organic, they cut it with the inorganic. So they're either applying a little more than a a pound in from the organic or uh, a little more than two pounds in, two and a half pounds in from organic. So these are the combinations. These are the treatment combinations. And when the inorganic fertilizer was substituted for the organic fertilizer, the first um, occasion, the second occasion, or the third occasion, these are the columns, you see the influence of um, these different substitutions of organic for the inorganic. So let me see. I'll, I'll try to make it clear. When when a little bit of orga- inorganic is, apl- is, is included in the first um, substitution, the, the color was a 7.25. When you substituted 
a little bit more inorganic, it goes up a half a point, which you probably will be able to see. Biologically, you'll probably be able to see that. Okay. So, in other words, you're applying a little bit more inorganic and you see a jump in color. And you see that pretty much. You see a half a point increase here as well. Okay. You see that from the September September rating. You see four and a half and five. You see the increases go up. Here's a six and a half and a seven and three quarters. Whenever you're applying a little bit more inorganic um, relative to the, or not relative, but a little bit more inorganic than organic. And you see the, the increase is all the way up to a nine. The second application, the third application, you see these quality ratings go really high. Eights and nines after the third uh, substitution of inorganic for organic. <clears throat> so, and then as, as the season progresses into October, November, you start to see the quality or the color, sorry, the color score really drop down as they did in the prior, uh, in the prior um, experiment down in the twos and threes. And you see, basically when you start getting to late October, all these are quite low. Okay. Here you actually do have some in the third application that are still staying high, but these are quite low. Okay. So make a long story short is when they substituted the organic with inorganic, the turf quality or the turf color ratings went up. It's that simple. Okay. And the reason they postulate that is, is like we've been going over for the last several weeks is that it ends up being too cold in many situations in the fall to allow that natural organic <clears throat> to start releasing this nitrogen. Okay. So the application of inorganic, um, avoids that process. You don't, it doesn't have to be converted by uh, the microbial activity, microbes in the soil. It doesn't have to be converted from the organic form to the organic, the inorganic form of ammonium and then nitrate. That's not the process is, is eliminated when you apply it directly as ammonium or as nitrate. Okay. Again, just more evidence to what we've already been shown. We're going to sum this up. The difference that became apparent in this study, however, was the fact that most of the plots tended to go dormant early, except those that received the inorganic nitrogen in the final application. So you can't get much more clear than that in terms of the value of inorganic nitrogen sources in the fall on cool season grasses. The fact that most of the plots tended to go dormant early, except those that received inorganic nitrogen. This timing effect would suggest that the organic form was less efficient and poorly absorbed. Using the unpaired t-test, there was a significant response to the, to the rate of inorganic nitrogen on July and August, and again in November. I don't know why I highlighted that. Um, in 1975, when the data for all inorganic and organic treatments were considered. Okay, so I don't know why I highlighted that. During the same period, there was no response during the summer from the amount of organic nitrogen applied. But there was a highly significant response on October 30th and November 19th. By that time, however, all scores were relatively low. <clears throat> so what he's saying is we didn't really see any response to the organic nitrogen during the summertime. We started to see a response in the fall, later in the fall. But by that point, the turf grass color had already declined. It was already going dormant. And then the quality had already, the color had already declined. Then we started seeing some differences in value of the organic nitrogen source, but they were already poor. The turf, the quality, the plots all were already poor by that point. They didn't see the, the advantage to applying it in the summer. 
because of, and this is kind of a kicker at the end, because of the lack of spring color response when the inorganic plus organic nitrogen combinations were used and the relatively low scores in the fall, except when the inorganic nitrogen was used in the final application, this experiment was terminated. <laughs> in other words, because they weren't getting any response from the organic form, they were only getting response from the inorganic form. They just shut the study down. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know why they did that. I mean, basically, I, I don't I don't know this particular author's spin on it, but they ran it for three or four years. And they're like, listen, nothing's happening from this organic stuff. It's only coming from the inorganic stuff. And they just shut it down. I think that's funny. I don't know if I'm reading that correctly, but that's the way I'm interpreting what he said. You know. Only low levels of nitrogen are required to get, this is the conclusions, only low levels of nitrogen are required to give acceptable green color to turf during summer months. So once again, it's the same thing Dr. Soldat said, it's the same thing other um, papers have said, low levels early in, early in the fall is fine. If you start moving into the fall, you really want to start cutting that nitrogen down because that's really all you need. Both inorganic and organic forms of N can achieve this, but the organic form is more dependent on temperature and may not respond well in some seasons under northern conditions. Where green turf color is desired early in the spring or late in the fall, the inorganic form of nitrogen are, more, are much more suitable and the green color is positively correlated with the amount of N applied during the summer from mid-May to mid-August. Fall retention of green color can be achieved by applying inorganic nitrogen to the last application of the inorganic plus organic combination of summer fertilization. But as reported earlier, this seems to be this seem there seems to be no effect on green color return in the spring. <clears throat> so this paper is basically saying exactly what it said is that whenever organic nitrogen forms were used. <clears throat> It didn't seem to respond well at all until later in the fall when it probably when the nitrogen finally started to get mineralized. And but by, by that time it was too late and the turf was already declining. But throughout that same time period, the inorganic nitrogen forms were resulting in uh, acceptable color. Okay. So <clears throat> we've gone through this a lot. <clears throat> and I know, excuse me. <clears throat> And I know that there's a whole slew of YouTubers and even, you know, marketing things and companies that talk about using natural organics. Okay. You got to use the natural organics. They're natural. They're better. Da, da, da. I can grow perfectly per per good grass with natural organics. There's no question. So can you. But in the fall on cool season turf grasses, if you want that color, it needs, it needs to go down as inorganic nitrogen early in the fall. If you're going to go down later in the fall, just use the same source, just reduce the rate a little bit. But going down later in the fall with inorganic nitrogen, I'm sorry, with organic nitrogen, natural, natural, um, natural organic products, bone mill, feather mill, um, you name it, okay? Nat uh, municipal biosolids chicken litter, whatever, that has a tremendous amount of organic nitrogen in it is not going to get you the same response. It's too cold. They're showing that even from urea formaldehyde and sulfur-coated urea, 
it just doesn't release anywhere near at a rate that it would be um, providing the necessary nitrogen uh, to result in that turf grass response as much as the the inorganic nitrogen sources. Okay, it's not, you know, you can find an article I'm sure here or there, but I've just shown you 15 or 20 that show the opposite. Okay, so these ideas of um, I'm gonna it's 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 Halloween. I'm gonna put this down as organic, and it's Thanksgiving. I'm gonna put this down, or it's even you know brown. The grass is brown; it's dormant. I'm gonna go ahead and put this down as a natural organic, so it'll be here in the spring. It's um, clearly based upon the, the papers that we've gone over. It is unwise to do that economically and environmentally okay let's talk about let me look at the chat and i'm gonna i'm gonna show a video i'm gonna show a um a website we're gonna go through a website real quick and show a few examples of this i don't know if you had anything in here that i needed to address i don't <clears throat> i don't know if you have anything you want me to any questions or whatever go ahead and put it in the chat now i'll read through this i'll go through this website and then we'll we'll be gone for the day um <clears throat> Oh, Eric Sand says automowers I uh, use has a GPS and doesn't need a wire, but it can get lost due to a weak signal pros. Yeah, I mean the the unit that I have has GPS on it. Um but it was the, I think it was like the last model that came out uh that required that had GPS that required the wire. Um and then the next summer, I think it was, the the wireless version came out. I'm not sure exactly how it works. There's a couple different ways that it, it works, but um, I don't know if it would work on my property or not. I'm not real sure if it would if it would do that. It probably would. The wireless version would probably work on my property, but regardless of even the wire problems, like I'm gonna go out here and I'm gonna spend three or four hours tracking down that cut in that wire. It's gonna take me some time to, to figure out where that is, but that pales in comparison to the amount of hours it, t- it takes for me to walk up and down that lawn and mow the lawn all year long. Okay. So even if that happened annually, a wire gets cut, which doesn't happen. I mean, it happened two or three times the first year I had it. And then I had it for a season or two and didn't have any problems with it. So even if it happens, which is going to happen, but if it happens once a year and I spend two, three hours tracking down a, a cut wire, yeah, you know, I, I spend an hour mowing my lawn once a week, the whole year. So to me, it's worth it to do that, to go ahead and have the auto mower. Um, plus, I just don't have to, to do anything. <laughs> it's always cut. You know, that's one of the first questions I get when I talk to people about auto mowers. How long does it take to cut the lawn? Well, how long does it take you to cut your lawn? Oh, it takes me an hour to cut my lawn. Okay, well, that's an hour that you don't have to do. Don't worry about it. So you're saving yourself an hour. Well, how long does it take to cut? Don't think of it that way. I, my automower runs from dusk till dawn, usually two, two to three days a week. It runs all night, a couple days a week, and the lawn's always cut. So whatever time you take to mow your lawn is the time that I'm saving because I'm not doing that at all. That's really got the way you got to look at it. <clears throat> Looney asks, a good question would be, why use natural organic products? Are they less polluting or better for the environment to use versus mineral fertilizers? Okay, well, that's a bit of a longer question than I could probably answer, you know, in in, in this time. But 
why use natural organic products? The only good argument I can think of to use a natural organic product would be in the case of a documented phosphorus deficiency and you applied the product based upon the known deficiency. So let's say you um, were deficient in phosphorus and um, it was documented as a turf response deficiency and you confirm that with a soil test. Let's say it was, I don't know, five or six parts per million, maybe like three phosphorus or something. You're like, okay, that's probably what it is. Then I would apply it based upon your regional or local maximum allowed limits of phosphorus application. So if it was a half a pound of pea, then I would apply a half a pound of pea. And I would apply that as frequently as the law would allow me to until that phosphorus deficiency is, is um, resolved. Other than that, there's a whole slew of complete nonsense from um, natural organic suppliers um, about dormant feeding. <clears throat> I would apply, you, you supply carbon to the soil and it increases microbial activity and all these things, which all may be 100% correct, but I've never seen an ounce of evidence from any of them, that any of those uh, manufacturers that would even remotely come close to convincing me that what they're saying is true. They'll say, okay, this golf course applied this um, natural organic during dormancy and look how much greener it is than all the other golf courses and then uh, in, in the area. Meanwhile, you go around and look at the other golf courses, all the other golf courses are green too. <laughs> it's like, so what about them? They didn't apply your product. They waited until the spring and they put it out and they look just as green as your product. Your This fairway does. And meanwhile, they did, they avoided all that environmental risk, potential and economic loss by not applying it and just waiting and putting on a, a soluble or, or inorganic form in the spring. But they'll use that as an example to, to convince people like they'll this fairway super green and they put out a dormant dormant feeding. Well, go look at all the other fairways that didn't do dormant feedings, you know, across the street. They look fine. You know, so it's 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 a it's a means to convince the uninformed or the uneducated or um, the easily convinced, you know, to buy their product. When in reality, um, applying any nitrogen, any phosphorus to grass that has zero chance of taking it up is not a BMP. Sorry, guys, it's not a best management practice. I don't really care about potassium and calcium and any element that's not known to be an, uh, an element of impairment. That's an economic loss to you. I care about that. I wish you didn't do it because I, I, I can see you being taken advantage of financially. You're probably not um, as, as sharp as you could be if you're doing that. But that's an economic loss to you and your business. I mean, it doesn't, I don't like it. I, I wish, you know, we could do more about it. But in the cases of dormant applications, I'm more concerned about N&P because that affects the guy down the road. That doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody else in the community. And um <clears throat> There's whenever there's zero, basically in the short and skinny of it is whenever there's zero chance the turf grass can take it up. There is zero good reasons to apply nitrogen and phosphorus. You, the whole point of applying nitrogen and phosphorus is so that the turf grass can take it up. And if it doesn't have the ability to do that because it's dormant, then it's not wise. And therefore it's not a BMP straightforward. Okay, guys. We're going to look at a website right here that says the exact opposite. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use natural organics. 
even even when the phosphorus is low and you can use it you could use it for phosphorus remediation or, or not remediation but phosphorus to supply phosphorus in deficient turf grass situations but the expense is enormous the expense to do that is enormous compared to other phosphorus fertilizers you could do it for much less money using dap diammonium phosphate monoammonium phosphate is going to be a fraction of the cost to supply that phosphorus compared to the natural organics and it's going to get you the same response basically you probably even do it quicker because it's immediately available versus the natural organic requiring it to break down over time a little bit before it's finally available okay uh eric sands there are two gps units one of the mowers and, and another mounted permanently it triangulates between the two to get a product yeah so i'm familiar with um i'm familiar with that process eric is that there was and i don't know there was a time when i was doing a lot of research with with uh, these units there was a time where there was basically like the equivalent of like a wi-fi router sort of thing that was attached to the house and from that uh, device it would locate it, the, the the unit could constantly locate where it is and over time it could build a map or it would know where it is on your property and would know where the boundary line is the imaginary line is and it would keep up with that but at the time they were developing that this was probably five years ago maybe longer there was some issue i can't remember what it was now i'm gonna get it wrong but there was some issue with keeping track of it in the backyard versus the front yard or side yards and the line of sight issues i don't know exactly how they got around that but the basic concept it sounds to me like one you maybe you're a specialist in this area i don't know you eric but um you're clearly familiar with the issues um maybe they figured out all those issues since then and, and it works fine now i don't know um but if it does i would definitely consider it because with no wire that eliminates a major headache on the automower side one more question then i'll get to the website <clears throat> looney asks would applying a mineral fertilizer source be better than using organic oh i just answered that yeah um yeah i mean better in terms of cost yeah the natural organic is going to be anywhere from four to as high as maybe 10 times more expensive on a pound per nitrogen basis so a pound for phosphorus basis would uh be somewhere in that same vicinity okay when you look at natural organics they can be deceiving because it's like oh this one's only whatever twenty dollars a bag or you know five hundred dollars a ton or whatever the case is but the analysis is so low you have to apply you know ten times as much or eight times as much whatever if its analysis is a six four zero versus an eleven forty eight oh you know you can see how much more you'd have to apply to get the same amount of nitrogen down or the same amount of phosphorus down and then the, then what happens is i love this argument i'll say well <clears throat> the the nitrogen or the phosphorus in the let's take dap for example the nitrogen phosphorus in that product is so high the spread rate is only i don't know what the number is 50 pounds per acre or 100 pounds per acre or whatever it is it's very very low and you're going to have prills you're going to have all these di these distances between the prills once they hit the turf grass Whereas the natural organic, it's low and you're going to have much more distribution of phosphorus across the, the turf grass, you know, uniformly, which is true. Particle size is going to, the particle distribution is going to be much more with the natural organic. But my, my comment is show me the evidence, you know, sh show me where I know <clears throat> for sure you're going to apply more particles with natural organic. I got that. 
but I don't care about that. Don't get deceived. Don't don't get going. Don't get let someone lead you down these roads. Like that sounds kind of convincing. Yeah, I can apply more. You know, it's the same amount of night, same amount of phosphorus, but it gets spread out more evenly. If I don't, if I don't do that, then one particle is going to be here, and another particle is going to be there with the with the diammonium phosphate, and it's in the, the, the there's not going to be enough phosphorus for the turf. Don't don't be convinced by these poor arguments, because there's all you got to do is where's the evidence for that? Where, I want to know about what the turf looks like, and despite my best efforts, which I have tried. I've gone from micros all the way up to granular, high granular, low low analysis, all the way up to high analysis fertilizers, and tried to see differences in some of these um, products in terms of the turf grass response. And only very rarely do I see differences. Do I see like a green circle here, a green spot here, versus no green spots over there from a larger distribution, particle distribution product. It's not easy to, to pull out these differences because you have low particle rates versus high particle rates on the nitrogen, on the phosphorus too. When it comes to herbicide applications or pesticide applications, it might be a little different, but um, it's, you know, the particle size argument is a pretty poor argument when it comes to the differences between what you'd see from applying phosphorus as DAP compared to natural organic products. But, but what they're saying is true. You're going to have more particles using the natural organic. That part is true. I don't care about that. I care about what the turf response is going to be. Show me what happens then. That that would be what would convince me. <clears throat> yeah, Jago, the, the robots in the lawn are like the robot vacuum, basically the exact same thing. Yeah. I don't like the robot vacuum in my house because I have higher carpets and they don't do that apparently, but maybe they, maybe they have one nowadays that does that. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, the imagine the storage and trucking expenses of using an organic versus phosphorus. No, Yeah, that Looney's saying that's a good point, Looney, is that... When you buy um, a pallet of, let's say, uh, I don't know, a blended fertilizer, a 3210 or something, I don't know, you buy a pallet of it. If you want to buy the same amount of nitrogen or the same amount of phosphorus from a natural organic, well, just do the math. So 2,000 pounds times, let's, what, what did I say, 30? Times 0.3, you got 600 pounds of nitrogen in a ton of a 30, 3210 or whatever. So you got 600 pounds. In order to get the same amount of nitrogen from a natural organic, you just simply divide that by the percent the, the percent nitrogen in the natural organic, which let's say it's 6%, that's 10,000 pounds. Divide that by 2,000, five tons. So you'd have one pallet supplying the same X amount of nitrogen you oh let's do it as natural organic. You'd have to buy five pallets, okay? Five, and you have to store five pallets. You have to spread five pallets to get the same amount of nitrogen as from an inorganic source. You know, <laughs> that's a good point, Looney. <clears throat> Eric asks, could the organic fertilizer pose a greater environmental risk due to the unpredictability of its breakdown? I, I would say. To that I, one, Eric, I can. We'll go into the environmental risk of organics and and inorganics and so forth when it comes to um, leaching and runoff. I would say, in general, no. Would the organic pose a greater environmental risk due to its unpredictability of breaking down? I would say, in general, no. Okay, if you put out the products at the same rate uh, at the same time of year, and there's no freak weather happens and, and everything's fine then um the natural organics w will generally be 
uh, will, will generally result in a reduced risk compared to inorganics, generally. But you're generally not going to apply inorganics at the same rate as you would organics. So, for example, you might apply an inorganic at a pound or a pound and a half of nitrogen. And in, to say, let's say, I don't know, uh, no, let's use uh, St. Augustine grass in Florida. You might apply a pound, a pound and a half from, as an inorganic. I think in Florida you can go up to two pounds at in if it's slow release. I think it's the law there. Don't quote me on that. But as an inorganic, you can only go up to 0.7 pounds, which again is another issue. That's whatever. But the point is you generally would apply lower rates of inorganics compared to organics. Okay. But when you apply the inorganics at these lower rates, the environmental risk is very, very low already. It's, you're, it's not going to generally result in some sort of environmental consequence that's of, of, of any meaningful level, assuming you're following best management practices. Okay. You're applying it when the grass is growing, not when the grass is going into dormancy. You're applying it during a quote unquote typical weather pattern, not when there's a hurricane on the, on the horizon, you know, three days from now, these sorts of things. Okay. But the natural organics in general have a little bit less of an impact than the inorganics, you know, apples to apples. But again, the impacts of inorganics are minimal, assuming you follow correct BMPs. I don't want to say inorganics will cause problems because generally they won't as as long as you do it correctly. Okay. Good questions. Let's get to the, um, let's get to the website real quick and then we'll shut this thing down and come back tomorrow. All right. So if you go over here to goodoldmillorganite.com and you'll see some articles and one of the articles is lawn dormancy, go down through here and it'll say fall and winter lawn dormancy. What is dormant fertilization? Dormant fertilization is a jumpstart on the spring. It's applied to cool season northern grasses after your lawn has lost most of its green color. You've stopped mowing your lawn because it no longer appears to be growing and the cold weather has already set in. You're not feeding the grass for the growth above ground, but building up food reserves so the grass will go into winter strong and green up faster in the spring. Late fall is the most important time of the year to fertilize. One, I do not agree with this statement. Okay, you're going to have to provide me some evidence to be convinced that that's the statement because I can show you evidence that the early spring is will result in a more uniform and prolonged color response and quality response than applications of nitrogen in the late fall. So I can directly refute that, and so can you which is the critical part here is that you all are learning, hopefully where to go find this information. And you can go back in some of our episodes here that we've gone over and find the episode that shows that the early spring application oftentimes results in equal or greater response and longevity of color and quality than the fall application. So this late fall application, and they're saying specifically late fall is the most important. Uh, clearly we at this point have a good reason to be skeptical skeptical of that statement and if you're so inclined you can go pull those articles and directly refute this if you if so desired but um uh it says you're okay what, what what got me on this was you're you've stopped mowing northern grasses after the lawn has lost most of it. you've stopped mowing your lawn because it's no longer appears to be growing so i would say in general when you've stopped mowing your lawn because it's slowed down so much, that's a good sign to not apply any more fertilizer. Why don't you just, why don't we just use that rather than a date and a temperature and a soil temperature, whatever you can tell 
When you, I, I told you a couple weeks ago, whenever, or a week ago, I'm mowing my lawn every week. The last two or three weeks, it's slowed down a lot. I'm really mowing it more now for the leaves, keeping keeping the leaves mulched up and keeping them off the lawn so it has some more sun exposure and you know help it along a little bit rather than I, mean, I have a lot of leaves. But when your grass slows down to the point where you're like, man, this is I'm not cutting a lot of tissue here. Clippings are pretty low. I'm just kind of nicking the tips of this grass. Instead of the, and what they're saying is, when this has happened, you can put out. And this is late fall. You can. This is the most important time to fertilize. What I'm saying is, and what the literature is saying, more important, what the literature is saying, is that that's a good indication to stop or greatly slow down the amount of nitrogen you're applying. Okay. But if you click on this dormant fertilization, the benefits of dormant lawn fertilization, another, another article will come up. And this article is by Jamie Stauffenbach. I don't know Jamie. I know she graduated from Oklahoma, or Oklahoma State. OSU. That, they need to change those acronyms. There's two OSUs. I'm pretty sure she graduated from Ohio State. I could be wrong. But you can go through this article and read all the all the propaganda about them basically trying to figure out a way for you to buy more of their product because, oh, you can put it out not just when the grass is growing, but when the grass is dormant, okay? Per, what's the purpose of dormant lawn fertilization? Helps the lawn recover more quickly from winter damage and snow mold. Not aware of any evidence to support that. Greens up lawns more quickly in the spring and may help in maintain its fresh green color through mid-May. There's a little bit of evidence that um, fall fertilization can provide that, as we've shown. Safer than early spring fertilization because walking on wet ground in spring can damage tender growth causing lost turf loss. It's safer than early spring fertilization because she's saying that if you're if it's wet and you're walking on it in the spring to spread fertilizer, you're going to cause problems. That's a pretty bad argument, guys. That's a pretty poor, poor uh, reason. Actively growing, you can say the same thing about them. Maybe it rained in the fall. Walking on it and spread it in the fall could have caused problems. Who knows? That's that's a really that's a huge dose of presupposition. Actively growing spring lawns will be better able to handle foot traffic. I agree. Actively growing spring lawns will be better able to handle foot traffic. We can achieve that with. Uh, the normal inorganic applications in the fall, early fall or mid fall, or go out in the early spring and apply a little bit of inorganic nitrogen and achieve that same response. I agree. A thick lawn keeps weeds down and and casting shade on sprouting weeds sounds and keeps uh, shade on sprouting seeds and keeps them from maturing. Now notice, and this, I'll come back to this so they don't delete it. Notice these last two, actually these last three, but these last two for sure have nothing to do specifically with fall or late late fall fertilization or dormant for dormant lawn. They're saying dormant lawn fertilization. They have nothing to do with dormant lawn fertilization. They're just trying to convince you. Oh yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. A thick lawn keeps weeds down for casting shade on sprouting weed. That seeds that does make sense. But it has nothing to do with late fall fertilization. That's just normal lawn maintenance management. You can you can achieve that with spring fertilization just as much as anything else. Okay, so don't be convinced because they. Oh, what's the purpose? Oh, that's a good purpose. Yeah, but <laughs> it's a false equivalency fallacy is what it is. You're 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 saying that this is going to happen as a result of that, and that's not the case. Uh, what's the difference between fall and winter? They're saying, basically saying falls when you're applying it and uh, winter, da-da-da. Let's see, when do I apply? Oh, there's something else I thought I wanted to say in here. No, only using only use slow release fertilizer for dormant fertilization. It's important that you only use slow release nitrogen fertilizer such as milorganite, which will stay on the soil of your dormant lawn until moisture and temperature conditions are just right for soil microbes 
to break down the nutrients for your lawn to use early spring. Quick-release fertilizers should not be used for dormant feeding. I agree. There shouldn't be any fertilizers being applied to dormant, fer- uh, any fertilizer applied to dormant grass, but certainly not uh, quick-release and definitely not slow-release. Neither one of them should be applied, but they're they're beating up quick-release fertilizers because as they immediately release nutrients, which should which could signal your lawn to start growing again. A late, so it's, it's a fear-mongering thing. If, if you put soluble in down... And a little bit of warmth comes up, and there's a little bit of nitrogen there to help, you know, get taken up in the plant and start. It could it could signal their lawn to start growing again. You don't want to do that. You want to keep it dormant because it's all you know. We want to keep it asleep until it's naturally moving up. It's it's an unbelievably bad argument. Okay, a late season growth spurt accompanied by hard freeze can especially damage to lawn. So this again, fear mongering again. There's also a view a very real risk of water polluting runoff. I agree. There is a very real risk of of water polluting runoff from that and from, but more from the the slow release. The soluble is going to move into the soil, in which case it's subject to leaching and potentially some subsurface below ground runoff, which can occur if it hits a hard pan and moves laterally. It can actually resurface. That can happen on solubles. But once it moves into the soil, it has very little ability or opportunity to run off. Your natural organic is the one that has the greatest chance of running off because it's still sitting there running off. I don't, I don't even think that would run off. Honestly, I think it would still probably be sitting there because the turf grass is an incredible organism. It's an incredible plant that keeps everything in tight and clean and it's a good filter. But if you're going to argue that soluble is going to run off, then I'm going to argue that your mill organite is going to run off. That's a, that's a horrible argument. You shouldn't be doing either one in my opinion. Okay. So I'm just going to have to say this is that, uh, we're going to close this off with with that article saying if you're only going to buy their product for the nine months that the grass is growing, well, they're thinking I can gain another 25% market or whatever that is, 25% um, purchases or whatever if I figure out a way to convince people to buy it during the three months they shouldn't be buying it. Well, let's talk about dormant fertilization. Well, okay, then let's talk about the evidence to support dormant fertilization. Don't just believe what they wrote. Okay, it's not... They can write whatever they want to write, but until they show me some sort of evidence published in a scientific refereed reputable turf grass journal, I'm not convinced by a long shot. And I'm hoping that now that we're done with the cool season fertilizer um, topic for a little while, I'm hoping that on some small level or greater that a lot of you are can read the articles like that and go, wait a second. Dormant fertilization, putting fertilizer down on dormant turf grass. What? what? You know, and you start reading through the, the advantages. You're like that doesn't make much. You know, they are, yeah, that makes sense. But that's the case for soluble and slow. A thick lawn is good for weed reduction. That's good for soluble or slow. What's the difference between those two in terms of weed management or weed weed prevalence? So that hopefully, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm just optimistic or naive. I don't know, but. Hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that you're, you know, if you didn't know it already, you're, you're starting to gain, maybe gain a little bit of skepticism and the critical thinking skills to kind of uh, avoid some of these marketing uh, propaganda pieces that uh, can greatly can lead to a, a great deal of wasted money and unfortunately increase a lot of potential environmental risk. Okay, guys. Um, any last question? Any last minute questions? Uh, Jesse B. Late fall applications are the most important for sellers of the product. 
as it inflates their bank accounts prior to the offseason. You know, that's funny. I would have laughed much more if you said uh, it inflates the seller uh, uh, are the most important for the seller as the, of the product as it inflates their bank accounts prior to the holiday season. <laughs> that, that'll help you with the next time through, Jay. Or no, Jesse. Sorry, Jesse said that. It's probably true. You know, it's it's uh it's definitely a possibility that they they use use that to well obviously they're using an increased profit. I, I'm hey I'm a, I'm a, I'm a capitalist as much as anybody. I'm all for you know making more money and and you know doing what you got to do. But if you're gonna you're gonna misinform people and you're gonna put out propaganda pieces that are in contrast to to the evidence that that we, that we published, then someone's got to stand up and start you know helping people out, help them understand that you know this is. This is the reality. This is the best of our knowledge. Applying nitrogen and phosphorus to dormant turf grass is not uh, a best management practice, and it's going to be a long time before it ever is. Um, so, so Tony Tillman, if applying in the fall, would it matter if it's applied foliar or granular? So I'm assuming that you're talking about both in both foliar or granular. I'm assuming you're talking about in or. Uh, inorganic nitrogen sources like a urea or ammonium sulfate. Uh, I'll be honest. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not aware of an example that specifically measured that between the foliar application. Cause you're talking about fo I'm, I'm, when you say foliar, I'm assuming you mean foliar and not liquid. So if I can look, I'll look, I'll look that up. I'm not aware of any work that's looked at specifically foliar applications compared to the same or similar program of granular applications. I would say that in either case, based upon my knowledge of the literature and the systems, I would say in either case, you're probably going to have a good, a decent response. The foliar application might not be as profound or prolonged because the amount of N you can put down is a little bit lower if, it, if, if you're talking about foliar and not liquid. Okay. You might need to do it more frequently with the foliar because you might be looking at like a quarter of a pound or a third of a pound as a foliar app versus say a pound of nitrogen as a granular app. So you might, in order to be a little safer, you're going to have to maybe lower that that nitrogen rate using a foliar. And if you do that, then the, it might not last for, you know, two months or whatever. You might have to do it every three or four weeks to kind of maintain that color or that growth um, compared to the granular app. But I'm not exactly familiar if there's a paper that looked at that, okay, I'll, I'll do some digging around and see if I can find a paper that looks specifically at foliar, not liquid compared to granular. Oh, okay. So Tony, uh, clarifies and says he's talking about liquid. So if you're talking about liquid, then, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to make any recommendations on liquid. I'll just tell you what we do in science. When we put down liquid, we put down almost all of our treatments in the uh, soluble form. We put down using a liquid back, uh, backpack spray, spraying out a liquid with air induction nozzles and high, high volumes, like 80 gallons per acre or something, you know, really putting down the liquid in a way that is not intended to be staying on the leaf surface. In that case, where you're putting down, say a, you can put down a pound of N as a liquid uh, nitrogen application in the fall. And in that case, I wouldn't expect to see much difference between that and a granular application of urea. So the, the question, from what I'm inferring, the question is, could I put down a pound of urea as a granular, put down a pound of urea as a liquid, would there be any differences? I would say probably not. Very unlikely. 
because that's what we do. We do in research all the time. We don't put down granulars except in some situations where we're looking specifically at that because the uniformity is a little bit uh, less and it's just easier. It's just, you know, it's not even uniformity. It's just, we're, it's easier for us to put it up, mix it up in a tank. We take it all out there and boom, 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 boom. We knock it all out and we're done. So we do that all the time. We put out many, many levels higher than what would probably be recommended in research. Um, uh, because we're trying to figure out rates and we do it all the time with liquid applications and we see very, very good responses. So I would expect to see very similar responses between those two fuller or the liquid and the granular application of say your urea, even an ammonium sulfate, assuming that it's a liquid and you're watering it in at, immediately after you apply it and you're applying it with a high carrier volume. Um, growing the grass, Milo, <laughs> Milo giving advice, blind leading the blind. I'll, I'll leave that where it lies. Um, I like I like some of these comments, guys. You're doing good, so so uh, you make me laugh. I need I need I need some pep up in my in my day sometimes. Looney, they they know what they write is BS. It's just marketing, yeah, propaganda. Yeah, I'll get into that at some point when my world of marketing and my experience and propaganda and um the various things that I've been subjected to, good and bad, over my career at some point. Um, yeah, so, uh, don't, don't watch any YouTube long care videos. It's crazy how fertilizing dormant grass is a thing that the overall majority of people believe they'll die on that hill. Yeah. I don't, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of videos on like pure dormant grass, uh, on YouTube. I mean, it does, you can see, um, some of the marketing as this one is the marketing. There's some other manufacturers and distributors that market uh, dormant, dormant fertilization. Uh, um, I would say, uh, yeah, usually say foliar for one to two gallons, so forty to eighty gallons per acre. So yeah, yeah, okay, uh, for foliar versus liquid. Um, I will say that there is at least one known, uh, one that I know of, of uh, article, a scientific paper that looked at nitrogen leaching during a warm season turf grass dormant fertilization during dormancy. So they actually looked at how much, let's see who, who authored that paper. I mean, I know who, I know who authored the paper. I wrote the damn thing, but I'll, I'll see who else, um, who else was on that paper. I forget. And I can't remember. I, I mean, I can't remember where it was. I'm sorry, where it was uh, published is where I'm going with that. Um, Damn, I, let's see. It's right here somewhere. Well, I, it does. I'll have to pull it. Um, I want to say it was in a pretty low journal. I can't remember now. Um, I was just going to show you where it was, but basically the take home message from that paper that we wrote ages ago is that we, we looked at nitrogen leaching nitrogen applications when centipede grass was dormant and we wanted to know what would happen and what the risk was. And, and ironically, or strangely enough, we didn't see much happen. We didn't see a lot of that nitrogen come out in leachate, even when the grass was dormant. So um, that's one piece of, of, you know, supporting evidence for 
you know, what could happen during dormancy if you applied nitrogen during dormancy? What's the risk of it moving off site? Well, in that study, we saw very little risk. Okay, very very little risk of of movement off site le- through leaching, even when centipede grass was dormant. So that would that would be a piece of evidence. I'm surprised they haven't picked up on that. Started using that as a marketing uh, scheme or something to to continue to produce or continue to promote uh, dormant fertilization because oh we we didn't find that it leached that much. Well, it's true we didn't find that it leached that much during that particular situation, but it still makes. Um, it's not a best management practice to apply any nutrient, particularly NNP, when the when the turf grass has zero chance of taking it up. Okay, that's that's the take home message from a lot of the a lot of the this whole last several weeks. Uh, tomorrow, the uh, the rest of this week will be fairly normal. We'll be here at uh, well, it will be normal. So tomorrow at ten, Thursday at ten, Wednesday at at nine p.m. I'm going to switch topics. I think what I'm going to do for the rest of the week is probably go into um, thatch, which I don't want to do. <laughs> okay. Thatch is ridiculously boring to me, but <clears throat> I'm going to do it. I'm going to bite the bullet because you guys, somebody mentioned it the other day. They're interested in looking at some thatch stuff. So I'm going to pull up thatch. And I'm going to go over maybe three or four papers. I'm not spending a month on thatch. Okay. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. I'll go insane. I'm trying to looking forward to the holiday season. So I don't, I don't want to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on thatch, but I'll probably spend the rest of this week on thatch, what it is, how it accumulates, what uh, options are there to be, to help reduce or minimize thatch production. In particular, I'll be looking at at least three papers, maybe four papers, I think on chemical the, the influence of supposed chemical thatch re, um, reduction products uh, on the actual impact of thatch and thatch production, okay? So, um, there, and, the, and there are a couple. I'll just say it right up front. There are a couple of products that have shown um, relatively consistent results. Uh, I don't know if I'd write home about it, but I don't know if I'd, you know, put the, you know, bet the house on it, but... Um, fairly, fairly predictable results using, um, well, particularly there's two products that, that tend to have a little bit of an impact on thatch production. So look forward to that for the next week or two. And, um, we'll, we'll see where that goes guys. Thanks so much for coming today. Um, I really appreciate it. I'll see you back again tomorrow at 10 AM until then be safe, be kind. See ya.